Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureViz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 120, and today's guest is Alexander Yampolsky, CEO and co-founder of Security Scorecard. It seems like there is a major data breach announcement every week these days, the most recent one being Capital One, where more than 100 million consumers had their personal information exposed. These issues that affect consumers are generally the ones reported in the news, but if you're a business, you probably want to make sure that any other business you're working with has a secure environment. That's where Security Scorecard comes into play. They provide a security ratings platform so that you're able to reduce your company's risk and exposure. The company recently announced $50 million in Series D funding. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Alexander's background, including his early interest in cybersecurity, his experience leading security operations at leading companies, and his career path to a chief information security officer position, what led him and his co-founder to start Security Scorecard, and all the details behind the company, the most common security issues that companies are dealing with these days, what we could be doing as consumers to help keep our information safe, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every single day? It's a great way to keep informed of the over 4,000 jobs listed on VentureFizz and have jobs from a specific category sent directly to you. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Alexander. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So this is a very timely conversation because in the news just the other day, another major data breach. So Capital One, uh, more than 100 million customers were affected with this major, major data breach and, you know, uh, Equifax. And there's so many just these occurrences happening over and over again. So I'm really interested in your opinion and thoughts on like, what does this mean? Like as a consumer, I'm just kind of baffled and confused. And I don't know if this is like just how it's going to be from now on, but like, what, what, like what's your take on all this? Well, look, yes, I think, <laughs> I think that's how it's going to be from now on. The information is digitized. So all the information at this point is stored online. Your social security number, your credit card applications, even information uploaded by your IoT devices and baby monitors that you put in your house. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, a contractor who used to work for Amazon uh, obtained access to S3 buckets, which is a storage mechanism in Amazon. Uh, and uh, then she leaked it on a source code repository, GitHub. Um, and uh, that source code repository contained information about over 106 million consumers um, who uh, applied and did business with Capital One. However, I do think that in this example, uh, Capital One reacted in a proper and good way uh, unlike what we've seen with Equifax. When a security researcher alerted Capital One about an existence of this information floating around, they jumped on it, uh, they shut it down, and then they alerted everybody around it. And in cybersecurity, everybody is vulnerable today. Uh, The vulnerabilities for many, many companies uh, because we're all interconnected to each other. And what matters more is not whether you're vulnerable or not, but how quickly do you react when you discover it. Uh, that's really what made a difference. And in this case, Capital One acted quickly and they acted uh, promptly in a, in a good and responsible manner. So do you think companies are finally learning like this best practice of how to react quickly? Like, cause I'm sure there was this time frame of like, Oh my God, what do we tell people or don't we, what's our liability if we do? So are you think companies are now learning that this is, you know, you need to let the consumers know immediately as soon as you can. I think so. I, I mean, I think that at this point, uh, 
all the information is publicly available. And there are a lot of security researchers who can observe and notice this information. So when you have a lot of eyes, when you have a lot of people looking at, at a particular issue, it's hard to it's hard it's hard to uh, to try to hide away. And so I think that this public scrutiny from both security practitioners and consumers has made companies to be better at disclosing it and better at uh, reacting to this type of events. Yeah, that's that's good. At least there's some forward progress of at least the alerting the consumer side of things. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the whole information security world in, in general and what your company does. But let's before we get into that, let's talk about your background. So just let's rewind the clock. Like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Sure. So I tell people it's a Brooklyn accent, uh, but uh, <laughs> every time they don't really believe me. Uh, <laughs> so I was born. I was born in Moscow, Russia. Uh, and uh, as a child, I was fascinated, like many people, uh, with science fiction. So I grew up reading Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And I always wanted to figure out how things work. So like, I like to dissect things and figure out how they really work, how to uh, pull them apart. And my love for cybersecurity was really uh, cemented. When a friend of mine at the age of 11, and I was 11 as well, he brought me this video game, uh, Prince of Persia, uh, that you may remember. Mm-hmm. And he infected that video game with a virus. Uh, and I wanted to get back at him, basically. And I, and, I started, and I started learning how computer viruses work, how cybersecurity works. And um, since the age of 12, my love for cybersecurity uh, was born. And then when I immigrated from Moscow to uh, New York with my uh, with my parents at the age of fourteen. I continued to pursue my career. What was the uh, the first computer you used? Oh, it was a Commodore sixty four. I mean, ah, it was yes. five twenty five floppy disks, and I started learning QBasic. And it was actually, in hindsight, it was really amazing because now computers today are so complicated. You have multi processing. You have all this, uh, you know, super complex. But back then things were so much simpler and like that was that was the joy yeah my, my first computer was a texas instruments ti 99 4a but uh lots of my friends had the commodore 64 and i we did a uh, not a survey but we we um reached out to a bunch of founders across the tech scene and so many of them had the 64 that's like the the, the staple first computer <laughs> so so, so when you moved to New York, so what, so you, you know, your academic background, um, you know, it's, you, you went to NYU, um, you studied mathematics and computer science, right? Yeah. So when I moved to us, um, at the age of, uh, 14, um, I didn't really speak much English and, uh, I finished high school when I was uh, 15 years old. Um, so like literally the, the, the day that I arrive, I don't speak much English and I have to take the SATs a couple of months later. So I solve, I usually solve all problems uh, by studying and hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and you know, when you come here as an immigrant with zero dollars in your pocket, that makes you hungry. And like, that's the best gift that I cannot give to my children. I cannot teach them what it means to be hungry and what it means to prove yourself over and over again. Um, and so when I first got to US, I literally opened up a dictionary and started learning one word after another. And I would use these words in a conversation with people at school. So I would look them, look at them and say, you know, Keith, uh, you look lugubrious. And they would look at me and say, what the hell you said? <laughs> you, look, you, look, you look sad, lugubrious. Like, look at this definition. So needless to say, it did not make me um, a lot of friends. Um, and uh, 
So I went you crushed the SATs by studying the dictionary. I crushed the SATs. I ended up going to NYU for my uh, undergrad. Uh, and then I went to Yale University to do my PhD in uh, cryptography. And my thesis was around uh, designing new uh, cryptographic mechanisms um, to enable uh, more secure distributed computing. So some of the, some of the uh, mechanisms that I designed, like a more efficient verifiable random function uh, became a foundation for uh, many new protocols around electronic uh, cash, um, electronic voting. So before blockchain and cryptocurrency and all this other stuff became popular, that was the type of stuff that I was researching back in grad school. Wow. Okay. So were any of those projects commercialized? Um, well, that's part of a reason why I decided to go uh, into industry because uh, at academia you do these theoretical papers about cybersecurity and and cryptography and how, how do you design the most secure encryption cipher and how do you dissect its mathematical uh, uh, analysis and prove security formally, but you never go and build them. Uh, and that was my frustration. And so when in grad school, I had a stint during the summer at Microsoft. Uh, and at Microsoft, I started building uh, the, uh, I was part of a team called Windows Live One Care, uh, which later became this health indicator. When you log into Windows and you see if it's green, red, yellow, if it's secure and properly backed up, that was part of a team that I developed. And to me, that was really a very formative experience, which made me love building things from scratch. And so when I finished, you know, when I finished my PhD, I said, well, I really want to go into the industry where I build things and make them come to life. I did not want to stay and do things on paper without ever commercializing them. And that's why after I got my doctorate, I made a jump. And then what did you do after your doctorate? So I, uh, so I had an offer from Microsoft to go join their research team. Uh, but I decided that I wanted to stay in New York. So I ended up joining uh, Oracle, uh, and I joined the uh, Oracle Identity Federation Group. And at Oracle, we were developing uh, authentication authorization solutions, which were used by some of the top leading companies in the world. It was basically my first job after I got my PhD. And uh, it was a very interesting experience because I got to experience how sales marketing interacts with engineers and how things are done at scale in huge organizations. And so I stayed there for about a year and a half. Uh, and then I jumped uh, to join Goldman Sachs. And at Goldman Sachs, I was responsible for all of the authentications. So every time you type a password as an external uh, client of Goldman Sachs or internal employee across four regions, New York, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, uh, I built the systems for them. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of transactions every second. Um, was a was a very fun experience. Yeah, like, like, like how did you accomplish that at such scale? Um, we uh, build the products internally. I mean, we had to build a lot of our products internally. Uh, none of the vendor products uh, that we looked at really could support this type of scale and support this type of frequency. So we had to build the infrastructure, the technology, the support system around it uh, from a ground up. And I actually traveled to China, to Beijing, China, to help them launch uh, the Chinese internet trading platform, which was kind of a lot of fun. Uh, and also a new experience where you sit in a meeting, but you try to communicate to people through an interpreter. And, uh, you know, just like it was an interesting exposure to a uh, difference of uh, 
cultures and le- and leading a team responsible for a team, um, you know, responsible for a team over there. So from there, you went on to Guild Group, and like just you know, based on your you know even as a child, this fascination of uh, you know uh, information security and your PhD and you know building this system for for Goldman, like so so you must have been highly sought after as like because you know I just remember. Um, helping out a startup in, I think it was like 2000, 2001, and they were building out, you know, these security products and it was hard to find people with that domain experience. So you must've been like highly sought after as far as the level of depth that you had, even at that point in time in your career, Never mind now. Yeah. So I would keep getting all these recruiter calls. Um, and my heart, you know, I always wanted to be in a startup uh, community. Like I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but before I became an entrepreneur, I knew that I had to learn about how big companies operate, how they do things at scale. Mm -hmm. So that's why I went to Microsoft, Oracle, Goldman Sachs. And so I get a lot of those calls. People call me, recruiters call me. And I remember getting a call from a recruiter who says, do you want to come interview at Guild Group? And I look at a website that's an e-commerce retailer company. I'm like, I don't want to go sell trousers for a living. Like, you know, that, that doesn't sound super exciting. I go home, talk to my wife, and she says, oh, yeah, I'm a customer at Guild. You should go interview for them. Maybe you're going to get me some close discounts. <laughs> um, so I go interview with them for a chief security officer position. And, um, and I've never been a CISO before, but I, uh, but I you know, I could... I winged it pretty nice, nicely, apparently, where make it you make it. <laughs> I convinced them that I could do the job. Um, and so I, uh, I also really liked the people. And so uh, then they called me and hired me as a CISO at Guild. And I joined them when there were 200 people. When I left, there were over uh, 2,000 people. So it went from 200 to 2,000 people in just a couple of years. Um, and I was in charge of PCI compliance, IT security, uh, fraud. So it was a really, really fun uh, experience um, at the time. And then obviously you got within that experience, you got, you know, kind of seeing a company scale from more of the you know, operational and startup realm. Uh, so you're seeing these different situations to help you again, further propel yourself as a successful entrepreneur. It was when you scale in from 200 to 2000 people, it sounds exciting, but it's actually very stressful. Everything breaks systems, processes, people, you have to, um, you, I mean, we were doing over $800 million in turnover per year and we had, um, and it was all kinds of fun, crazy experiences. Like literally, um, I remember one of the, uh, like literally like one of the guys uh, kept booking trips on fraudulent stolen credit cards. And I was trying to catch that guy for months and months and months. And, uh, because he would book these expensive vacations using other people's credit cards. And one day, and, and so that taught me how to do forensic analysis, how to discover, um, how to discover to trace somebody based on just uh, email information and, you know, traces that they leave behind. And in the end, we actually ended up collaborating with the uh, police and uh, arresting that particular individual. So it was a good outcome. Wow. That is crazy. <laughs> No, so you had another stop before uh, starting Security Scorecard. So, um, so you were uh, CTO of a startup, right? So um, back when I was uh, a CISO at Guild, uh-huh. a friend of mine introduced me to the CEO of uh, Block the Radio Cinchcast. Um, you know, and I went out and I went out uh, for 
lunch with him uh, because the premise was just like get to know each other. Uh, Alex, you've been successful at recruiting and scaling teams, so talk about how you recruit amazing people. And uh, um, and so I went out for lunch and talked about how to recruit amazing engineers in New York. Uh, and um, and you know, and like a few weeks later, he calls me and says, "Hey, like, would you be interested to become a CTO?" And uh, I was not really ready to change a job because I was making good money. You know, I had the uh, big companies courting me for CISO and other positions. Um, but I looked at the technology and it was a very interesting idea where a block tech radio enabled people just to have a conversation like you and I having, uh, could be over the phone, and then, and then stream a live podcast to millions of people across the world. So you had people like President Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Brett Pitt using the technology. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was appealing. And I knew that if I came there and helped them scale their technology, help scale the teams, then I could uh, make the impact. And also to me, it was a smaller company. It was only 40 people. So I knew that if I joined, it was kind of like a fun, another experience of a very smaller startup, which I've not had. And so I did, uh, I did that. Uh, and then uh, I was trying to recruit Sam, who was my, uh, who, who was working with me at at Guild. He was running one of my teams, and after I left uh, Guild, he became a CISO. He took over my job, and so I was trying to recruit him as a chief of staff for Block Tech Radio, and I invited him for an interview. Uh, he came over, met the people, and then he says, "Look, Alex, like I love, I would love to work with you, but." I don't really be working in online podcasting. And I'm like, crap, like I, I love Sam, like I wanna work with him again. That was the impetus for us to start meeting up for coffee and to whiteboard different type of ideas uh, that we can build. Um, and that kind of led to the uh, beginning of the formation of Security Scorecard. So what were some of the, um, do you remember any of the ideas you guys came up with that you didn't pursue? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, we listed 10 ideas on a whiteboard uh, as we were meeting. And, uh, you know, and as we validated them, as we talked to different type of customers, we kept crossing them out one after another. And in the end, uh, we were left with two. One of them was effectively Coinbase uh, for crypto assets. Uh, and uh, Mr. PhD here in cryptography <laughs> at the time when Bitcoin was trading very low, no, I thought it's a stupid idea that it's never going to go up. <laughs> so much for my judgment. Uh, and so, so I told Sam, we're doing security scorecard. Like, we're going to be doing this. So I ended up doing security scorecard. Well, you came up with two, uh, two winning ideas. <laughs> so <laughs> very yeah, that's a good point. Going back to your, um, your PhD studies, that, uh, that, that totally relates. Well, let's, let's get deep at the security scorecard. So, so what, what, what does your company actually do? Sure. So back when I was, uh, you know, back when I was uh, at Guild Group, I had a, you know, I had a uh, event that made me uh, very afraid uh, for my job. I had all kinds of tools as a chief security officer um, to help me protect my company. I had threat intelligence feeds. I had GRC systems, intrusion detection system, all kinds of stuff. So I knew where the skeletons were buried within my own company. Uh, and one day we were looking at a solution by another third-party vendor, um, which would actually help us mitigate e-commerce fraud. And we looked at the penetration test results. We met the team face-to-face, -face, and the team sounded very credible. Uh, and we signed a contract, and literally at the last minute when we started uh, integrating with systems of that company, we discovered unencrypted credit cards belonging to other customers within that system. 
Um, so that to me was a wake-up call. I'm like, wait a second. I could lose my job as a chief security officer due to circumstances outside of my control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea if the companies that I do business with are as diligent as I am when it comes to protecting my data. Mm-hmm. And so the idea for security scorecard was very simple to, uh, to say and very hard to do. Uh, the question was, can you non-intrusively from outside pick up signals uh, about good and poor security hygiene and use the signals to reduce to a security score that indicate to you resilience of a company? Mm-hmm. To give you an example, I mean, suppose I look at the VentureFizz uh, website and at the bottom of a site, I see it says, Copyright 2008. It's not a vulnerability, but I just discovered, you know, you've not updated your site for 11 years. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting, simple signal that I can detect from outside. And so we came up with hundreds of different type of signals like that. We scaled the technology um, and uh, built a uh, platform, Security Scorecard, which allows you for any company in the world to put a name of a company and discover the score, ability to improve that score, and the issues that comprise it. So our mission as a company is we want to make a world a safer place because if we give companies scores and we teach them how to remediate and improve their scores, then it's going to be harder for outside hackers to get in. So that's really what we do and the story behind it. So so is a proper analogy, like, you know, as a consumer, your, your credit score of, uh, you know, obviously, you know, getting a, you know, a car loan, like, obviously, they're gonna look at my credit score and make sure I'm worthy to do business with that I pay my bills on time and what my credit rating is or getting a mortgage. So it's the same analogy applied to doing business with, you know, B2B, but for security ratings. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I think you can compare what we do to a credit rating but for cybersecurity and this type of stuff okay. has not really this type this type of stuff has not really existed uh, 5 years ago and obviously now it does so so how do you actually how did you build out like the the model that is the data that factors into your overall ratings methodology sure so uh, there're really uh, three steps in the process in step 1 we gather the data from all over the world so the difficulty here is how to ensure veracity, uh, accuracy, and just deal with the data at scale. So step one, you gather the data. Step two, if you give me a company name, how do you discover the assets and the attack surface of a company, its subsidiaries, its different type of uh, data centers? And then step three, how do you sign a meaningful score? And what we do is we are sitting on over five years of historical information about when companies announce a data breach. And we have a team of data scientists that correlated how different type of data points and signals that we collect, how much they correlate and tie to likelihood of a data breach. And we've shown that companies with a bad score, a D or an F grade, are five and a half times more likely to be breached than companies with an uh, A score. Um, and so by doing this historical analysis, we've been able to build and calibrate the scores uh, that are predictive in many ways of uh, likelihood of a company to suffer a data breach. So on your website, you had lots of interesting pieces of information that you know one could get lost in, but one particular uh, statistic that I, I noticed was the weekly number of security issues discovered is typically 11 billion, oh, like, that's a weekly number that you're detecting. That's just 11 billion. That just was like, what? <laughs> That's just a huge, huge number. So, so what, what does that mean? 
Well, uh, indeed, there's a huge number of indicators of vulnerability that are out there. I mean, today we live in a world where all this data is out there. You just need to be able to collate it and analyze and make sense of it. So, uh, I mean, it's a similar analogy. If you walk in a neighborhood, I mean, if you magically manage to walk across every street in America and just observe which windows are broken, how many houses there are with broken windows and broken locks on the door, you're going to have lots and lots of houses. Mm -hmm. So those houses are more likely to be burglarized. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we have a technology called threat market, and we're gathering the indicators of uh, compromise and security indicators from over uh, 26 co-located facilities worldwide. For example, we have an R&D team that reverse engineers malware, they sinkhole the malware, and as a result, they're able to get millions of infected computers worldwide communicate to our infrastructure. So every single day, we detect millions and millions petabytes of data indicating different type of poor elements of hygiene worldwide. There's a lot, a lot of vulnerabilities. And what's more troubling is that the hackers actually have a lot of the same techniques. The hackers are sitting on all the data. Um, all the data is available, uh, just like, for example, it happened to be that a good guy, a security researcher alerted and detected uh, that vulnerability for Capital One, and he alerted them. Mm -hmm. But similarly, the bad guys, the bad hackers who had that information, and they used it. And so today, what we need is we need a way to get all this information from outside in, very quickly analyze it, synthesize it, and be able to come up with a rating or a score to prioritize where to pay your attention. And, you know, that's kind of what we're doing. So your customers, like a lot, like what's the typical, uh, you know, is it all sizes of companies that you work with? And, and once they are working with security scorecard, like what's, what is the expectation of, of what they receive? Is it like a, they get a, their own score every month or like how does the actual business of what you do work? Sure. So we have uh, several buckets of customers. The beachhead market for us has been uh, companies in all kinds of sectors, retail, healthcare, technology, uh, healthcare, um, where they use our scores to benchmark uh, vendors, partners uh, that they do business with. Mm -hmm. um, and then they use the scores to prioritize and hold accountable other companies that they do business with. For example, we have a large company in a manufacturing space, multi-billion dollar publicly traded company, and that company uh, holds accountable and rates each one of their tens of thousands of suppliers. Uh, that's one use case. A second use case is we have a company uh, in a technology sector, and they use the scores to report to the board of directors, how they stack up compared to the rest of the industry. Mm -hmm. And then a third uh, use case is uh, we have companies which are using our scores to make uh, cyber insurance underwriting decisions. So we're working with many, many top uh, in cyber insurance uh, brokers and providers um, like AXA and many others. And those companies are using our scores to make more intelligent underwriting decisions about companies that they provide insurance for. Now, you uh, recently closed a $50 million Series D round of funding. So you've raised over $110 million total. So, so what's your current scale of your company in terms of you know, employees, customers, or whatever you can, can share? Sure. So we've recently closed a $50 million, uh, $50 million round with Riverwood Capital, like a fantastic uh, investor. 
that we're very excited uh, to be partnered with. Uh, the company has been doubling valuation and doubling uh, revenue each year for the past four years. Right now, we're at over uh, 200 employees, and just the next month, we'll be probably going from about 200 to 250. Uh, so we're hiring for you know, pretty much every single department, engineering, marketing, sales, finance, HR, like across the board. So over 200 employees today, somewhere between 200 to 250, a little bit under 1,000 customers, uh, ranging from top companies in the world to smaller companies, uh, but anybody you can think of is using our uh, product. Um, uh, then um, we're doubling the number of new logos every single year. Uh, we have over a million companies rated in a platform. So over a million ratings that we compute every single day, more than anybody else in a space. Um, and, um, you know, we headquartered in New York, and then we have offices in Raleigh, North Carolina, New York, and also in Prague, uh, Czech Republic, and Europe. So, you know, that's kind of a rough uh, ballpark of a scale. So it's a, it's a super exciting journey. Yeah. So are there common elements of uh, security issues that you see vulnerabilities that, you know, it's, it's kind of like the things that c companies just tend to miss that it's not the overly sophisticated yet, not the basic, but there's like a common theme of security threats that companies seem to, uh, to either forget about or just are not addressing. You know, there was a good, uh, there was a good talk uh, by Rob Joyce um, from the NSA. Uh, and the talk was titled, if you want to make it hard for a nation state to hack your company, how to make it as hard as possible? And the, and the talk contained a quote, which I thought was very deep. He said that we as the attackers know your company uh, network better than you do. You think you know what your network is? But we actually know what it is. Like a lot of people don't know what's on their network. Mm -hmm. They don't know how many misconfigured or expired SSL certificates they have. They don't know what their attack surface of a perimeter is. So I would say that misconfigured, expired SSL certificates, uh, certain open parts of a perimeter are a common mistake number one. It's simple to fix, yet a lot of companies just lack visibility into their attack surface. And the second part is uh, patching. Companies do not patch the basics. So in a case of Equifax, Apache Strat's vulnerability that was used to exploit them was available for months. The patch and the fix was available for months, mm -hmm. uh, yet it was not applied. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of the time, companies just don't patch the systems on time. Uh, and so that would be the second common mistake that we observe. Wow. Okay. Now, as consumers, um, I guess this is you know a, a great question to ask you, like, uh, you know, just as your own personal protection like what 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 can i be doing as a consumer to just make sure that you know everything is digital and these vault these breaches are going to happen but what can i be doing to protect myself sure so um a couple of pieces of advice for consumers think before you click a lot of times people just click on stuff if you just insert the think piece beforehand uh you're going to be safer just like if you are coming down home uh, in the evening people are conditioned to look over your shoulder to see if somebody's following you from behind. On internet, people uh, share all kinds of information, they click on links, uh, they don't think of that. But it's even more dangerous uh, in many ways. So think before you click. Uh, number two, uh, periodically monitor your credit card and your bank account for any suspicious charges, just like periodically make it a habit to 
pay attention. Uh, and number three, make sure that you have a two-factor authentication enabled on all your systems. Like you should not be able to log into your email, to Facebook, to Twitter, to your bank account, just with a password. Like you need to make sure that you configure two-factor authentication to also require text message uh, on your phone to log in. Because a lot of the time, uh, hackers have access to uh, big dumps of leaked credentials. And chances are people reuse their uh, passwords over and over again. Uh, and they don't keep them safe and then they reuse the same ones. And so chances are you probably reuse the same password as you used before. So don't do it and enable the two-factor authentication. That would be my three pieces of advice. And I've been finding like, um, you know, SaaS companies that I work with, they're incentivizing you to enable a two-factor authentication as uh, like uh, with MailChimp, they were like, you know, we'll have a discount on your bill if you enable that feature. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an amazing idea. Uh, unfortunately, not enough companies are incentivizing uh, customers to do it. Some people have, some companies have an ability to enable it. But, but that ability is tucked away and not obvious in a user interface and they don't really incentivize you. Uh, and so people don't know how to do it. Uh, so I think that this idea to incentivize somebody and to make it easy and obvious is a fantastic idea. Mm -hmm. Now you're uh, also you know, a big part of the New York tech community. You're, you, know, you founded the New York Tech Startup Meetup. You've been a mentor for Accelerprise. Um, you're an angel investor. So you know, do, do, like, like, why do you, like, you're busy building a company and, you know, I'm sure you've got lots of other things going on. So, so why do you think it's important to, you know, start these groups that help other entrepreneurs or even invest in other companies? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big believer that you want to give back uh, to the community. Uh, the more people around you, I mean, if you think, of, if you, you know, if you think back to New York 10 years ago, I mean, you could count enterprise startups or just startups in New York on one, one hand. Today, there's so many people doing amazing innovation, amazing startups. Um, and as more people around you do those type of things and scale companies to the next level, it becomes infectious. So, you know, there's a great support system in Silicon Valley. And so we've seen companies like Google, Facebook, you know, and others emerge because there's an ecosystem of people uh, who you can talk to for advice, for insights. There's an ecosystem of executives that you could recruit. We need to see more of that in New York as well. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm doing it. That's great. Now, uh, you've raised a lot of capital for security scorecards. So what, what advice would you give to other founders that, you know, it's not like you had a uh, track record of starting companies and raising capital. So you had to figure that out as a first time founder. So what advice would you give to other founders to, trying to do the same? Uh, sure. I mean, I have three pieces of advice. Um, so number one, especially for people who are technical founders, engineers or product people, um, you have to learn how to sell. Like your ability to persuade people makes a huge difference. Ability to persuade investors to believe in your vision, ability to convince early employees to come work for you and believe in your vision, ability to get early adopters to buy your product. So number one, you gotta be able to sell and communicate your vision effectively. Number two, uh, listen to your customer. Uh, a lot of the time people have startup ideas, but they never really establish a product market fit because they don't take the time to hear the customer. They might talk to customer prospects, but they don't hear them. 
so you need to listen carefully, intently, and validate your idea and deliver value for customers. It's all about the value. And the third is, wh- whenever you start a startup, you don't want to go into a market where everybody tells you like, yeah, it's a great idea, it's a great job. You want to go into a market where many people might tell you, I don't know about that, or you get a lukewarm reception. Because if you go into a market where everybody thinks it's a great job, you're too late to the game. Uh, you know, probably lots of other smart people are doing it. When you're a startup, you got to fly into the radar, incubate it. Then when you're stronger, you emerge. Mm-hmm. And so you gotta you got to catch the wave at the right time. So I think that uh, ability to persuade people, listening to a customer, delivering value, and you know, market timing is uh, very, very important. That's great, great feedback. So what do you like to do outside of work when you have time? <laughs> I play chess for fun. Uh, you know, I would walk to Union Square and uh, play chess in the evening. I like to read uh, books. Uh, I like arts. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, like, I think that one common mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make is that they don't balance um, work and uh, the time that you need to invest into yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very, very important to make sure that you exercise, eat healthy, take time to spend time with the family, take a vacation, because if you're not doing it, then you cannot bring yourself 100% to work. Like, you got to be feeling great physically and mentally, um, and then you're going to be successful. And so that is uh, very important. Yeah, totally helps you avoid the, the whole burnout. Well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great things that you've accomplished, and of course, what you're doing with Security Scorecard, and all the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.